difference? Well, when I think of the Heavenly Father, and if you notice, the worship set was designed that way to be focused on the Father and His good love and His good work for us and the text that we're doing. So today, we're going to close off this first part of our series in Colossians, and we're going to take a break for some Thanksgiving celebration, and then we're going to jump right back in with the supremacy of Christ, starting in chapter 1, verse 15, and that's going to carry us through the, the end of January, and then we're preparing this final stretch in the book of Colossians uh, from February all the way to the Sunday before Palm Sunday, where we want to just focus on what God has to tell and speak to the church with culture. And so um, all of that is, is coming up, but let's read the text this morning. Um, I would invite you, if you don't have a Bible there in front of your seats, there's some additional Bibles. You can feel free to grab one, open it up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 14 today, but <clears throat> we started this prayer back in verse, thir- verse 3. And many scholars believe this prayer actually is the longest prayer that that you would find uh, people would make in the Bible. And the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, so he decided, uh, uh, you know, him and the Holy Spirit decided to give us this lengthy prayer that many scholars believe goes all the way to verse 23. And right at the center of this prayer that we're going to pick up in December is this Christological him of, of, of the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. So I can't wait together. That's like eating a piece of steak for me. And I just love to just, you know, digest and read and chew because that's how you eat a piece of steak. You don't, you don't swallow it. You cut it in small pieces and you put it in your mouth and you chew it and you savor it and flavor it. Right? And so that's, that's going to be the way. But here, Colossians 1.12, this message we entitled, The Father Delivers and Redeems. And, and here's why. Uh, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a very theological prayer. And again, uh, many scholars suggest that Paul is being very theological in the way he's praying. And, and, and you'll see it when he starts in verse 15, and he goes into this Christological hymn. But now, he's praying, and what a beautiful thing for us as believers, as redeemed, to take a step back. As one scholar put it this way, salvation derived from the Father. And this we see it in Genesis 3.15, when man fell, and he rebelled against God's design and plan in that Garden of Eden. And he spoke to the serpent. And from the descendants of this woman will arise one whom you will bite his heel, but he will step on your head. And that's a prophetic messianic since the early pages of the book of Genesis, alluding to the Messiah who came and lived and dwelt amongst uh, uh, the humanity and provided salvation, as uh, John would later write, to all them who would believe in him, he would give the power to become children of God. 
A beautiful reminder as we see this. And another scholar put this this way that I loved. And when I was reading this text and and wrestling with it, verses 12 through 13, for those of you who are theological savvy and you love to write and take notes, notice how he gives us this threefold action in verses 12 and 13 of what the Father did. First action, the Father has qualified you. The Father has qualified you. This is very similar to Paul's language when he writes to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It is not we, it is not I, it's not my skills or abilities, but it is God who qualifies those who he calls. Never, my dear friends, must we in ministry ever take for granted the power of the triune God when he calls and qualifies people not only into relationship with him, but into acts of service. So, when we respond to a yes to the Lord, we never respond off of the flesh or by our inabilities or abilities because none of us are ever qualified enough to serve the living God. None of us are. I don't care how much seminary, how much doctoral uh, works we have written. None of that means anything before the Lord. For God calls and chooses the foolishness of this world to shame the wise. And so we see this, that it is God. So this threefold action that we see first is he who qualifies you is the first action. The second one is he has delivered us in verse 13. Not only does God qualify us, but God has delivered us. And we're going to take a little bit more at that and what that means. But then the third action that we see in this thrifold action in verses 12 and 13, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So three things there, right? Three takeaways in this sermon. God has qualified you, he has delivered you, and he has transferred you. Wow. Okay, let's go home. (laughs) That's it. I'm still targeting to preach the eight-word sermon that Jonah preached in Nineveh, and the whole city converted. (laughs) I'm really trying, folks. I'm really trying. Um, But I'm afraid that I'm going to fail once again to preach an eight-word sermon. So, Let me leave with you at least four truths that this text speaks to us, and I hope that it would edify us, it would build us up in the most holiest of faith and understanding, as Warren Wiersbe would say, many Christians do not understand the full package of salvation, that God has delivered you from the bonds of guilt and sin and condemnation and the domain of darkness, but He's delivered you, and he has transferred you into the redeemed community. So salvation is not meant for individualism, as our culture teaches it, but it's communal. God has called us from, and he has transferred us into this redeemed community where you and I get to love one another, and yes, at times we stretch one another, and at times we might pull one another and yank one another in the context of redeemed community. So yes, I do get involved in your business, and as you should in mine, because we are a family 
or as we say in Latin America, we are la familia. We are the family that has been purchased. And, 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 and again, as we're going to see this, this morning, right? Um, once again, this has many things for us. Again, this, this, this word that I'm driving, not only in Christ, but notice how here, uh, the first one is giving thanks to the Father for his great plan of salvation. This is, how, this is how Paul is starting this first part of, of, this, of, this, of, this, uh, of these two, of these verses from verse 12 through uh, 14. Notice how he, he thanks the Father and by simply saying, giving thanks to the Father. This is how he starts the text. Why can a person be grateful? This is very important for us because all gratitude in the life of the believer derives from the gift, God's great master plan of salvation. That's the reason why we are so grateful to God, for he has redeemed us. When I think of my life, if, if you had known me back then, you wouldn't be uh, asking me to be your pastor. I grew up in church. I was nine years old when I asked Jesus to come into my life and be the Lord and Savior. Yet there was a season of this rebelliousness in my life where I wanted to try the things of the world. And those things were pulling me away, distracting me from the trueness of the gospel and its power in my life. And I, and I found myself one foot in church and one foot out of church. And I was struggling. There was this real war. And I remember it was my prom night and I had... This plan that I already had said, and I said, I'm going to lose my virginity, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going I'm to just give myself to darkness and, and the passions of sin. I scored on a dime of weed, and I, and I had a bottle of Jack Daniels that I had for that night, and I already had plans with the girl that I was going to go with and everything, and then all of a sudden, all my plans came tumbling down, and I'm grateful for that. I wasn't at that time, but I'm grateful for that because I believe God was preserving my life for future ministry. But it was post my event that I was so mad because my plans had fallen apart that I smoked the biggest joint that I could make and I drank as much of that liquor as I could because I was so mad. And perhaps in my drunkenness, it was there in, that, in the pit of darkness, in the pit of isolation, in the pit of anger and emotions that God touched my heart and called me out. And I knew right there that my life for, 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 forever would be dedicated to his service and his honor. I believe truly, yeah, I had my experience at nine years old, but I truly believe when that night, God, in that very moment, qualified me to say, you know what, Pablo, you will not become this, yeah, you're, you're going you're gonna to do construction and whatnot, you're going to build houses, you're going to do whatever you, you aspired, but that night, I believe God said, tonight, you're mine. Tonight, you're mine. And just like my story, your story, at whatever point that God reached out to you in your disparity, in your loss, in your anger, in your bitterness, in your evil intentions of your flesh. 
God reached out to you in his sovereign love and said, tonight you're mine. This is beautiful because this is the reason why we give thanks to the Father. Again, it takes us back to verse 10 and all the way through verse 12. So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. This is the fruit of God's work in our lives, the gospel. And, and so, you know, in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And then again, in verse 12, giving thanks. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, because I was lost and now I'm found. I was in bondage and I've been freed. I've been delivered. I've been transferred from condemnation now to glorious freedom. Though my body withers, though I die and I succumb to cancer, I am truly healed and freed now in the presence of the Lord Almighty. That's a reason to give thanks. And this is what he was saying. Now, now, since we are in the book of Colossians, let's take, let's take a step back really quick and let's say, okay, how does the, all this unpack? Look, look how Paul gave thanks for the church in Colossae. Colossians 1.3, we always, we always, we always thank God. Man, I think Paul is, is full of hyperbole here because always? How about when, when this guy is in prison? Or when he's being beaten, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 gives a long resume. I think if a guy like that applied at a job in the company that I was at, I wouldn't hire him because he's just a man of bad luck. <laughs> what type of resume is that? You know, getting beat, getting arrested, getting accused. I, I mean, the guy is, 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 is the principal chief of divisions. You don't want an employee like that. But yet, he, he gave Thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. How about Colossians 1.12? Look what he says. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share an inheritance of the sons in light. How about Colossians 2.7? Rooted and built in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, how about Colossians 3, 15 through 17? We've read these before. But there it, there it is again. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing, as I always say, my sons, I always have that vivid palms, right? Singing psalms and hymns in spiritual uh, um, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And then verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Notice how thanksgiving in a, is a motive, not just in prayer, but when he's giving moral instructions to the church, ethical descriptions of conduct. Therefore, this is why I insist we're not moralist. We're not focused on just the do's and don't do's. We do this because of God's great gift and his wondrous plan of redemption being manifested through his son Jesus Christ in our lives. 
This is rather important, friends, because again, as Paul gets into the heresies and, and, the, and the admonitions to the church and the believers of Colossae, what was that heresy that was attacking the church? Was it legalism? Was it paganism? Was it mysticism? Well, nobody can say for certain. However, these were the elements that were attacking the sufficiency of God's redemptive work in Christ Jesus in the life of the believer. And anything, may I suggest, dear friends, anything that gets in the way of our understanding of Christ's work and the sufficiency of his redemptive work in our lives, be careful. Be careful. I think if Paul had lights and smoke machines, he would have used them in worship service. That's just my personal bias. Why? Because it enhances a presentation of gospel truth to his audience. Paul didn't live in the 21st century. He would be scratching his head. What's all this? What's this piano doing here? What's are the drums? What is it? Paul, Paul wouldn't understand that. But we do because we live in the 21st century. However, however, my friends, as we see in this text... Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Wow. Thanksgiving. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Second thing is this. The Father qualifies people, again, the Father qualifies people to share in His glorious inheritance. Now, again, let's look at this verse, the second part of verse 12 very slowly here. Uh, who has qualified, he qualified you. Again, this isn't singular. He's talking to a group of people here. So, it's, it, you know, in English is deceiving. But th this you is plural, not singular. So, he qualified you to share, okay? So, he qualified you to share in the inheritance, right, of the saints in light. Notice, in light. In light is a theme that we can't ignore. It's a biblical motive that we see. Again, you go to John chapter 1, right? Um, where does this light and who's the source of light? Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But then you have to pass verse 2 and verse 3, and then you get to verse 4. And the light of the world, the light of life... The genesis of all life is coming and entering into this darkness that we call the cosmo in the Greek, into this world of darkness, of moral darkness and perversion, and this light is coming in, unlike all religions of the world. Christianity describes a God who's engaged in his creation. And, and took it upon him. No one could say that. No other religion could compare to that. But Christianity presents him who was in the beginning of all things, ever since eternity, was the Word. And the Word was God, broken into time and space. Him who was outside of it came into time and space and took on the form of flesh. And he dwelt amongst us. He ate. Man, Jesus was a big carnivorous guy. I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian. No offense. No offense. But Jesus was, uh, well, okay, he was Jewish. So we forgive him for that. He was kosher. But he did eat fish. 
And I suggest even after his resurrection, when he, when he finally revealed himself to his disciples, what did he say? Do you guys have some fish? He didn't ask them for a Bible or the scroll. He said, hey, give me some fish. I'm hungry. That's why he wasn't a ghost or some type of spiritual. Why? Because he was, he was body. He was bones and flesh. He had a glorified body. Okay, so let me, because I'm getting distracted here. Um, again, share an inheritance. This is Old Testament echo. My friends, we cannot read the New Testament without considering what the Old Testament instructed on these things. So two verses, you can read them on your own. You can turn there or, or mark them down. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.9 and, and Deuteronomy 32.9. And, and therefore, uh, Deuteronomy 10.9 reads this way. Therefore, Levi has no portions or inheritance with his brothers. Here's, that, here's the connotation of, of the word inheritance and sharing that we're reading in, in Paul's context here. The Lord is his inheritance. Notice that. Imagine, you know, you're a Levite. Nobody wanted to be a Levite, just like today. They, no, that's why there's a shortage of pastors and ministers. Nobody wants to be a pastor. They're all, they're all on social media, and they're getting beat. I was beaten, too, if you didn't know. After our event, man, they say, how dare you? You're leading this church into darkness, da-da-da. And just, all of that criticism comes with the package. Nobody wanted to be a, a Levite, but yet, notice what the Lord says. The Lord is his inheritance. Would you rather take all the money this world could give you, or do you want the Lord? Ooh. <laughs> hey, pastor, you know, prosperity is good. I don't know about this being in ministry. I'll tell you, you take a pay cut when you, when you get in ministry. But the Lord is your inheritance. That's what he was saying. And how about this one in dirty, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 9? Uh, but the Lord's portion, the Lord's portion is his people. One scholar put it this way. Not only do you belong to Christ in the work of redemption, but Christ belongs to you. How about that? Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, we're God's property. But have you ever stopped to consider that just as you are God's property, God is your property. You and him are mono to mono in this relationship. What a beautiful picture, right? What a reason to give thanks to the Lord. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The basis of God's qualifying the saints is the blood of Christ that atones for our sins and leads us to forgiveness and justification. We're going to look at that in just a, a, minute, a minute here. But the you... The you, my friends, I don't want us to miss. This plural you was meant not just for the, the Jewish believers, but it was also meant for the Gentiles. When we look at Clovis, who is moved into Clovis? We have to ask. I've been enjoying my time taking these demographic studies with, with our good friend uh, Katie uh, Dudgeon. Yeah. Uh, 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 from the EFCA West. And she's been walking me through, and we I mean, our last conversation was at least two hours unpacking the demographics of the city. I can't wait to share that with the staff because this really helps us focus on who lives in our community and that you that, God, that, that Paul is speaking to is the you who's going to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Third, the Father has delivered us Notice this, this language again. He's echoing this language from, from the book of Exodus. And, and in the future, next year, we're going to do a series on Exodus, the great departure. That's what I'm calling it, the great departure. But, but notice this. The Father has delivered us from, 
and transferred us to through his beloved son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom. How come God didn't say the kingdom of God or the kingdom of light? But notice how he calls it here, the kingdom of his beloved son. Ooh. So, Exodus 6, 6, look what it says. The Lord, so therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. Uh, Further on in the verse, and I will deliver you from the slavery to uh, uh, slavery to them, referring to the Egypt Egyptians, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Um, Exodus four thirty, look at uh, fourteen thirty. It says, "Thus the Lord saved Israel." Um, Deuteronomy seven eight, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Paul is echoing Old Testament Jewish tradition and theology in the book of Colossians. For the believer, one of the greatest stories of redemption is the book of Exodus. Once again, John 1, 9 through 13 really paints that picture of what it is to be in the light. Finally, finally. Finally, the Father through the Son redeemed and forgave our sins. Sounds a bit redundant, doesn't it? But there's a reason for this. And there's a reason why, again, Paul is just going over and over and over and over. There's a, there's a real, real important uh, lesson for us here. Not just that he wants to drill this in us. Not that he just wants to bore us. Not that he wants to keep us in the, in, the, in the basics of Christianity. But there's a lesson here as we consider living pragmatic lives in this world and how we conduct ourselves as a redeemed community. So, so notice this in verse 14. In whom we have redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. I said the blood of Christ is what that which atones for our sins and leads to forgiveness and justification. Again, Paul makes this very evident throughout the book of Colossians. Let's, let's look at three of them. First of all, Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. My friends, what is the biggest obstacle that communities have between one another? Um, I'll say it this way. Interpersonal relationships. Interpersonal relationships. Uh, who has been hurt? Who has been criticized? Who's, who's been torn down instead of being lifted up? Usually, un- tragically, it does happen in churches. Like we can't see somebody prosper and God being using somebody and we have to cut that person down. And yet, 
we have been, a peace has been established and made for us through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Uh, Colossians 1.22, and he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and, check this out, blameless. <laughs> I spoke to a man who's going through divorce. And he was just beating himself up. And I tell him, Romans 8.1. He took a step back. He goes, what does Romans 8, 1 say? I said, do you really believe that you are in Christ? And he said, absolutely. I believe that. Regardless of all my mistakes and my shortcomings, I believe I am in Christ. Then Romans 8, 1. What does Romans 8, 1 say? Come on, pastor. Don't, don't let me know. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is no condemnation therefore for those who are in Christ Jesus that means God not only forgave my past sins God forgives my present sins and God will even forgive my future sin how's that for your theology <laughs> and this is what Paul is saying and, and notice, again, Colossians 2, 10 through 14, I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven, uh, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt. Don't let sin and condemnation keep you down. If you are in Christ, therefore, there is no more condemnation. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Okay. As we conclude with one more verse, and then I promise I'll let you go. <laughs> Not yet, because we have to do communion. We're going to get communion. Once again, can I, can I drive? Can, I, can you give him permission? Look what Paul is doing here. He's really echoing the, the, the he's really echoing this, new, it's almost like one scholar said, this new Exodus imagery, this new Exodus imagery. He's taking from old Exodus and really applying it to the now and then of the believers in Colossae. Redeeming his people to continuous emphasis in the Exodus accounts. This ransom is the payment that frees people from the power of sin and makes them children of God. Here's how Paul would conclude this to, to the believers in Rome um, as, he, as he was just um, really uh, highlighting this. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. A rich theological, uh, uh, soteriological part of the scriptures that you can really draw to understand the redemptive work of Christ, Christ's salvific work in your life and ours as believers. Here's what Paul told the believers in Rome. Starting in verse 21, he says it this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does this mean to us? As we, as we move from this teaching time to this communion time, what does this mean to us? My friends, I think it means several things, but two principal things. We can partake of communion, first of all, because God has qualified us to take it. It is God who calls. It is God who qualifies. Secondly, he provided for us the Lord Jesus Christ who took on the form of flesh. And in his flesh, he came. He came into humanity at just the right time. And you see that reminder of the cross behind me? It's the reminder of where his body was hung. And in that cross, at that moment, when he cried out, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It was there. When the Lord was, was almost at those last minutes, and he said, Father, forgive them. He could have called fire from heaven. He could have sent down uh, uh, angels to take them out. He could have destroyed any, everyone there. But he did that because he knew through his death and three days later when he would defeat the power of death, the power of sin, the power of condemnation so that in the name of Jesus Christ, you and I who believe, no matter how you feel, no matter what you've done, no matter how dark your disparity is, that if you would invoke the name of Jesus Christ, you would be saved. And this is what, what, what it means to us when we come and partake. This is more than just a liturgy, friends. This is just more than a ceremony that we do in a spiritual sense. This is us gathering around the Lord's table in communion because of his great work on that cross and the blood that was shed so that when we can approach the very throne of grace and God and holiness, we approach it through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why, as I said last week, you can walk, not like walk like, okay, God, I'm coming, it's me, remember? But that you can walk with confidence and say, hey, Daddy, I'm here. Hey, Daddy, I'm home. Hey, Daddy, I'm here. Let's fellowship. Let's remember that day when our Lord died. But also remember, remember 
that three days later, he resurrected again with power and put into effect his sacrifice on that cross.